Hey, Lakeman. You got the memo? They've moved divisional parking into a crummy lot now for some reason. Yeah. I know you did, because you parked there this morning. Yeah. But. Yeah? Same spots. What? We've maintained the same spots. C-19. Still mine. That's on the memo. And you still parked there. Seriously. C-19. That's a letter and number stenciled on the curb of my reserved parking space in which this morning you parked once again and in which if you park tomorrow, I'll fire you. Okay? Got it. Lakeman. Yeah, Leslie. Are you a McMillan man? Oh, man, yeah. I just laid down a mini dirt bike, and I'm doing a jig in front of it, right here in the broadcast studio. Hi, everybody. Welcome to McMillan Men. This is the show where we talk about the Amazon Prime show, Patriot. I'm Luke Burbank. Dancing near his tiny motorbike is my friend Andrew Walsh. Hello. Hey, can't wait to get to the part where I get to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> I'm nervous about shooting a rifle. Yes. I was- Wait, which one of the kids are we in this oh, weird you're such <laughs> kind a of John. parallel that we're spinning? You don't even have to. You are John, and I am such an Edward. You know that. <laughs> you know, I haven't seen the entire series, so I don't know what Edward, a.k.a. Cool Rick, <laughs> still, you know, still he may surprise all of us. Um, uh, let me just uh, right here at the top mention that you're, you're hearing this song by Vashti uh, Bunyan. This is the actual theme song to the Amazon Prime show Patriot. On our on our maiden voyage last week, we were so excited talking about the show, and I was on this whole thing about the credits and how I feel like the opening credits really set a tone and, and how they use this really slow, kind of beautiful song. And then we ended up actually playing the wrong song. And I'm talking over it, and I'm going, God, now just imagine, this is the beginning of a spy show. <laughs> and it was uh, it was actually the wrong Vashti Bunyan song. So I'm glad we can correct that right here at the top. We got a lot of great feedback from folks last week. It was like, we're excited that someone is doing a podcast about Patriot, and uh, we're extremely here for this, as the youth say. But they also were saying in the nicest way possible, uh, you played the wrong song. Yeah, you came by it honestly. I want to um, give new listeners uh, a little background. I don't know why I feel so protective of you. First of all, that was a slip on both of us. Like you said the song, I called it up. I didn't even rec. I mean, somehow I didn't connect the dots that it was the wrong song. It sounded familiar to me. Um, but you fell in love with this whole album because of yes. Patriot, right? And so you're yes. now familiar with that whole record, which makes it easier, I think, to make yes. that mistake. I have no excuse. I actually went I bought I bought the vinyl of this from Amoeba Records in LA RIP um aren't they isn't Amoeba leaving that location that was at for Are so they? many years Are Yeah I heard that somewhere Ugh. The I good news is it's using it's turning into a mixed-use condo development. So yeah, no. At least we get one more of those in the world. I just hope there's a CVS in the bottom floor because <laughs> not enough of those. Yeah. 
But um, anyway, I, yeah, I bought the album. I love, I love that song so much, and then all of the songs on it. I mean, let's be honest, Andrew. It probably scratches a Donovan itch for you that hmm. I don't have as much as you do. Like I told you, there's like a song about like Nathan the Glowworm on there, <laughs> which clearly she went in the garden and looked at a worm and wrote a song uh-huh. about it. Like it's, it's um. Uh, she put out this album called Just Another Diamond Day in 1970. This is, I'm reading directly from uh, Wikipedia now. The album sold very few copies, and Bunyan, discouraged, abandoned her musical career. Oh. By 2000, her album had acquired a cult following, uh, and then she, it was re-released, and she recorded some more songs, and it started the second phase of her musical career. There was a 30-year gap in between. And it somehow just seems so fitting. And maybe one day we'll get to actually talk to Stephen Conrad, the the creator of Patriot. Um, uh, and I would love to, to to ask him how he found out about this song, uh, if he was the person, in fact, who advocated for it being the theme song to season one of Patriot. And also if there's – like, I don't know. Our, our The main podcast you and I do together is called TBTL, like Too Beautiful to Live. And it's a show that um, – kind of has let's just say a niche appeal patriot is i think an amazing television uh, program that has a niche appeal and then vashti bunyan her appeal was so niche she quit music wow it's just basically three titanics crashed into each other and we're just <laughs> sinking in the proximity of our lack of making an impression on the wider culture right here we are um so we yes. are going to talk about uh episode Two today, and I had a question for you at the top, Luke. Yes, I, and I think I know what the answer to this is. But let's talk about ground rules, because in uh, our first episode, we had a lot of ground to cover. We talked about why we're doing the podcast, why we love it, and then we tried to do a recap. And that recap was really long. I think we even said yeah. this on the show because we were talking to maybe people who've never seen the show before. We were talking to people who are have watched one episode and are playing along with us, and we're talking to people who know the show really well. As we go into episode two, starting with the very, very first shot, we are introduced to a new character, and we see a pile of mm-hmm. CDs. And mm-hmm. as people who've already watched the entire first season, and for me the entire second season, I know what those CDs mean. I know all of the tie-ins, but to a brand new viewer, you have no idea who this new character is. You have no idea what those CDs represent, and you have no idea why he just suddenly says, John, at the end of the scene, uh, when we hear a song come on the radio. Now, are we talking, who are we talking to, and how are we going to do it? Are we going to try to be spoiler-free for people who've only seen episode two so far? Boy, I hadn't thought of that, because the way we presented this was we're going to go episode by episode. Um, and so like we, we did a little, we assigned the listeners to our other podcast, we assigned them the task of watching the show. But we didn't say you got to watch both seasons. We said you got to watch yeah. like they should have finished. They should have finished episode two at a minimum, which is called C nineteen, by the way. Which I thought when 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 the the very beginning, the kind of title page. Another thing I love about this show: the title pages. Each one, you know, each episode has its own name, and each title page has its whole own art around it. This one is kind of this kayak with a like a schematic, which I thought that maybe C-19 was the model of kayak. C-19 mm. is, in fact, a parking space that becomes a kind of recurring uh, thread throughout this episode. But 
Back to your question. I look. I think we I think we have to be free to be who we are, which is bad at podcasting mm-hmm. and all over the map and possibly spoiling some things. I mean, I don't think we should go out of our way to spoil anything, but I think I here's what I'm really trying to say. I think we need to manage the listener's expectation. Mm-hmm. Some people are listening to this show. They've never heard us do a show before. Uh, they may be thinking they're dealing with competent mm-hmm. broadcasters, people who are focused, who have thought things through. Uh, we are not those. These we are not those droids you were looking for. So I think we need to kind of like get, cut ourselves some slack to occasionally accidentally spoil something. Uh, occasionally get the theme song of the show wrong. We got to be us, <laughs> right. Andrew. We got to dance with who brung us. We got to give the redditors something to complain about. So we're gonna. That's right. Carefully put um, some mistakes into the show, just like you did purposely mm-hmm. last week with the um, we, theme song mistake. We're enjoying a honeymoon period with the Patriot subreddit. Yeah, all four people in there. They seem to be cutting us some slack, <laughs> which is great. I hear I hear the corners of the internet are notoriously supportive and loving towards yeah, all projects. So that's what I, I hear assume too. this will just go on this way forever. But uh, yeah, so so let's talk let's talk Rob Saperstein for a moment if we can. Um, this guy, Mark Boone Jr., he's so great in this role. I forgot how great he was. I'm watching these episodes for the second time, but just oh my god, everything down to the car he's driving or trying to drive. The kayak in question, uh, him getting on the bus with the kayak, yes, him trying to I was sell. Say that. There's something so special about that shot, that quick four second shot of him hmm. getting on the bus with the kayak. It's almost Mary Poppins esque, right? As you see <laughs> it go in there, you're like, how is that whole thing going to fit? It's a reverse clown car. It is. How is so much kayak going into? I mean, it's not like a small vehicle, but it's like, that's too much kayak for that <laughs> transit bus in uh in uh where's that is that amsterdam that's amsterdam yep Uh, amsterdam Amsterdam. 2012 is when that is i like the way i'm trying to really pay attention to the um the the text on the The screen when it says when and where we are i um the scene where he's trying to sell the kayak uh with a hole in it i guess you'd call it uh and he's trying to be so casual about it I, for some reason, can really relate to being Rob Saperstein in that moment where you've just been caught, but you're thinking if I keep the lie going a little longer, it might work. And also just this feels like a clash of cultures to me. You've got Saperstein, who's a presumably presumably American, and then you've got this um, you know, uh, a Dutch guy who's being very Dutch and very proper, you know, saying more or less, Every time you move, your hand continues obscuring that one section of the kayak. And like when he's just like, I'm not going to buy the fucking kayak until I see what's behind your hand. When it finally like he reaches the point where he's done being nice and Dutch about it. I don't know. That scene just stresses me out and delights me. I wasn't going to do this and I didn't pull the tape in advance. And I almost did because it's one of the funniest parts of the show. Let me just try playing it here from the okay. from the streaming. See if this works. You can see that. She's in good shape. Okay. 
Now, if you if you are somebody who hasn't seen this scene because it's so visual, the kayak is in this guy's kind of nice apartment. Uh, Saperstein is a kind of bedraggled looking guy. He's clearly down on his luck when we first see him in the car. Like- he's on. Tom Waits eating more carbs. <laughs> yes, and he's on the phone uh, trying to leave a voicemail for, you know, clearly an ex-spouse saying he's late with the child support and a phone. He's clearly a guy who is at his wit's end um, yes. and his financial end, and he's trying to sell this crappy kayak. And now the whole thing, him and the kayak are in this nice apartment. And as he's showing it off with one hand, as Luke says, he's covering a hole in it with his <laughs> other hand. And it's just like it's not its not even close to smooth. It is like the most awkward uh, presentation you can possibly imagine. So let's go back. Seaworthy. When you gestured down this kayak, you changed hands, but you kept... You always kept one of your hands covering the same portion of the kayak. Did I? Yes. He's still covering it. Yeah. Hmm. Now you're trying to look casual. Like you're just standing there, but you're still covering up this same portion of the kayak. While you're just standing there. Am I? May I see that portion? Well, it's not a big thing. I need to see it. It's not a big crack. It's just a surface thing. And it says advertised. I need it to says see. advertised. As I said, it's, it's gently loved in my Craigslist. I'm I- not buying this fucking kayak until you move away from that area. Uh, in my Craigslist, I like that's it. I had <laughs> I, I had that. the exact same thought. I wondered if that was written that way, which if it was, it's genius. Or if that was just if Mark Boone Jr. just kind of said Craig like if that was improvised, or if, uh-huh. he, if he just messed up and said Craigslist. But that is just Chef's kiss. Yes, I beautifully love it. done. It's just so you know. It's it's just there's something great about calling it his Craigslist. Um, so yeah, so we don't really know what Ken Saperstein's part of this whole thing is because I believe that at this point we're not even really getting a sense of who's on the cover of these CDs, these unsold mm-hmm. CDs he has in his car. I will say um, that you can see even if you're watching this for the very first time, you can see that the name of the CD is Timons and Saperstein. Time spelled like the um, spice T H Y M E N S and Saperstein, and it's clearly a kind of um, parody of the Sounds of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. Like it, the the album cover is very reminiscent of that. Very folky. Very, yes, you can just look at that and you can go, "That's not hip hop." <laughs> yeah, that is definitely right, right. that is emotional folky music that is being made within that jewel case mm-hmm. of that cd um so uh so yeah so we've got uh, this new guy who who then is going and you know he's basically going to kill himself and uh, but he's watching a youtube video on how to make a noose which had me thinking about a lot of things too which was mm-hmm. is it irresponsible to put a youtube video about how to make a noose on yep. youtube because what would why would anyone ever need to know how to make a, a noose other than for an awful reason of either hanging themselves or someone else. Maybe there's the occasional Halloween uh, implication. You're trying to be the hangman or something. But other than that, it's almost never a good thing. And why, like, should YouTube even allow those things to exist? And then he can't even really make the noose right, which is, I thought that would be me. 
I'm terrible at I, – I have a YouTube video of how to tie a bow tie that I have to watch four times a year when I host an event <laughs> where I wear a bow tie. Like I would be the guy trying to figure out how to make a noose to hang myself, watching a YouTube video, and not really being able to even make a good noose. Can I, I – first of all, I went on the same exact journey in the like you know 10 seconds or 30 seconds of that <laughs> scene. I'm thinking the same thing. I'm like, I wonder if there are videos like that on YouTube, and if so, if they come with a lot of warnings, because now YouTube will sometimes put warnings on you know, even if the original author didn't, they will put little warnings like this could be misinformation or here are some facts about whatever you're looking up. Now, I'm going to do something. I am logged into YouTube. YouTube knows it's me because it's all part and parcel with my Googles um, and my Craigslists. Um, and oh, I'm yeah. going to type in how to make a noose. I want you to know, everybody mm-hmm. hearing me right now, I am typing. This is part of my search history because of this show. Everything is okay, all right? Now, okay. I type in how to type a and then I type in the letter N noose does not pop up um in case you're curious how to make a ninja star with paper how to make a nose ring with a paper clip how to make a note block in minecraft i'll be looking that up later when you type in how to make a noose Uh, make the noose first (laughs) easy easy it's a dark show it's a dark it's a darkly comic show and so we can make a darkly comic podcast (laughs) when i write how to make a noose it will not autocomplete so i think that is probably flagged by youtube now when i hit return yeah, it's a how to make the hangman's noose, how to tie a hangman's noose. Yeah, there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of how tos on on YouTube. Wow, I mean, you know, not that the, we didn't launch this this podcast to take up issues of free speech, but I mean, I think there's probably a pretty legitimate debate on both sides mm-hmm. of that of that issue. So, um, uh, this episode, and, and again, Andrew, stop me, remind me of things that I'm leaving out that are that are critical to the plot, but basically. Um, John's got to figure out how to get back somewhat in the good graces of Leslie and the travel team because he needs to go back to Luxembourg because Cantor Wally has uh, gotten his hands on the money or the money is on its way ultimately to Cantor. It's going to be on the way to Cantor Wally. Um, and so this needs to be interrupted. One thing I wondered, is there a strategy to battleship? Is there a way you can be like you know, uh, sort of extremely and capri- uh, um, precociously good at battleship. Because as Cantor Wally apparently was. Now, I actually have a question for you. Is Cantor Wally, Cantor Wally is the candidate that they're trying to keep out of power in Iran, but it's the physicist who they're concerned, oh. and the physicist's wife who's coming over. So I am okay. confused as to whether it's Cantor Wally or the physicist who actually was the good childhood battleship, battleship player. player. I think okay, it's good the question. physicist. Okay, so, so good clarification. But my question remains, can you be good at battleship? Can you be better than, or is it just a guessing game? Yes, because even, like, I think I've played digital versions of Battleship before because I have a really rich, full family life, (laughs) and um, and there's just a lot of people who love me. Um, No, but I think I've played before, and there is usually um, a suggestion of, like, you know, place these things strategically. Don't group them all together. If you group all of your ships together, that makes it easier because... 
you've played Battleship, you know, like once you right. find a pocket, you start exploring all the area around that pocket. And so if they're all grouped together, that would be a bad strategy. So there's at least right. that amount of strategy. You want to spread things around and probably, I'm going to say also not put everything along the edges either because that would be kind of obvious. So there are maybe some gambits to Battleship of like, I'm opening with the Wally defense. Right. Is this for... Is his first name Cantor? Is his last name Cant? Is Cantor his title? And then Wally is, um, I don't know. But there's still so much for me to learn about that character in this show. But I was wondering as I watched that if you could be if you could be a child prodigy at Battleship and be beating all these adults, or if it is basically a game where you're just taking lucky guesses and sometimes you're lucky and sometimes you're not. Yeah, um, I do think I, – boy, you're raising a lot of good questions. Can I just say while we're in this point where we're admitting a few things that we just kind of don't get, like Cantor Wally is definitely the politician, not the physicist. I, I think I'm secure in yes. saying that. But yes. I do want to come back to one thing I said last week. And this is not a show, by the way, where we're going to be picking apart Patriot. I love Patriot. Um, but I am still confused, and I, and I want to believe this is on me, not the show, but I am still confused – after re-watching episodes one and two, what happened that John handed the bag to the wrong person? And I don't know if we ever get clarity on that, but if we do, if somebody could email me, andrew at tbtl.net, let me know if you have theories about that or strictly or, or simply no, um, because something – I guess there's another spy network out there and somehow they – intercepted these plans and they knew enough that there was a guy named John who was going to have tons of money in a bag and if you get there first he'll hand it to you but I am really confused and I kind of got a little distracted watching the show yesterday with that question on my mind because this show as I said and will continue to say is meticulous nothing there's no sloppiness in this show so I think right. I'm really missing something and it's driving me nuts well, I mean, Terry O'Quinn's character, Tom Tavener, is being – he's sort of being debriefed on video camera, mm -hmm. and he does describe that the money went to the wrong person, mm -hmm. but he doesn't get specific about it. Right. And by the way, speaking of keeping track of time and, and space, uh, mm -hmm. that um, deposition, the videotaped deposition that we're seeing uh, is clearly demarked as being 2017, right? Another important question, does Terry O'Quinn – pull off being bald better than anybody else oh my of God. our era. I know. And that's what people some I was talking to a friend the other day who's a very uh, staunch feminist and she said the only thing that I, I got to say you guys deal with is baldness that I don't think I could handle because I think I was talking about my, you know, male pattern baldness and its progression. Um and I said, honestly, can we just say the Terry O'Quinn fairy visits you at night? Can, <laughs> that, we, can is, we make this a positive? Can we say I'm, the, the I'm Tom Tavner fairy just came and took a few more of my hairs overnight? I'm a fr I'm a friend of Terry. I'm a friend of Terry's. <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I replied that. The bald don't feel bad for guys because we have to deal with baldness because men can be good looking and bald. Mm. Now, I am but not one of them, but I could start by going to the gym. There are so many things I could do to, <laughs> you know, increase my um, handsomeness that I am not doing. If I really cared about my appearance, I could do things that could make baldness work. Right. 
I've always said I can pull off being heavy set or I can pull off being bald, but I can't pull off both. Right. And so I'm trying. I mean, you know, with limited success, I'm trying to battle it on both fronts. But I'll tell you this: I was googling. The reason I thought about it was because, and uh, we may play this tape later. There's the scene where Edward Tavner, uh, played by Michael Chernis, is telling a story about going to the Beastie Boys with his dad, and he mentions casually that his dad was already bald. Oh, that's right. And I don't know right. why. I don't know why that sparked something in my mind. But then uh-huh. I googled Terry O'Quinn, who was on like. Uh, one of the Star Trek shows, because he was in some form of Star Trek. I don't know what generation it was. But he has hair on the side. It's not shaved like he has it uh, for Patriot. And he was not nearly as good a look. I know he was famously on Lost as well. But um, I just, you know, tip of the cap to Terry O'Quinn. It's working, bro. It's a very it's a very, very handsome man. Um, so other, let's just talk about some other kind of emerging things in this episode. One of them that I really love is the kind of uh, sort of subtle tension that's ratcheted up with the Stephen Chu character mm-hmm. and also his um, kind of, uh, what would you call, industrial therapist, Charlotte Arnold, uh, who uh, she, she plays the character Ali O'Donnell. Because um, Stephen is the guy that John pushed into traffic because he needed to get the job at McMillan. But the, I, I, again, there's just so many times on this show uh, we'll talk about birdbath too, where there's something that happens and you just think, okay, that happened, but then it just comes back in some fashion. Mm-hmm. And this idea, like the first of all, the whole dynamic between the Stephen character and the Allie character cracks me up. I love how she's kind of she's kind of annoyed with him the whole time um, when he repeats something or whatever. She'll be like, "We talked about this, Stephen." Like, I love. Her, that I looked up that actor, Charlotte Arnold. She's Canadian, and um, uh, she I think she was in Degrassi Junior High or something. She's great in this show, as is Marcus Toji, who plays Stephen Chu. I it's like you last week trying every time we talk about a new character, you say this is my favorite character. <laughs> yeah, um, the nurse it fascinates me. She is one of my favorite characters on the show. You always we've seen just the very beginning of her in this episode, and we're going to see a lot more of her. And I think that with a lot of the relationships and the dialogue in this show, it's going to get a little bit even turned up as time goes on. But we're getting a feel for her, and you're right; she is no, his number one biggest advocate but she is also negging him and it's such an interesting dynamic yet and i didn't even think about this during the show until i'm forced to talk about it now that i think that the writers are really kind of honing in on or i guess it's homing in on something that you do see kind of in real life sometime when you are a caregiver for somebody who is really struggling with something you will be the number one defender of that person. If anybody looks sideways at them, if any, mm-hmm. I mean, you will defend them in a second. But because it is often a really hard job to be a caregiver for somebody who is struggling with something, whether it's brain damage or anything along those lines, you also are a human being, and it's really hard, and you can get frustrated. So you sometimes will hear those same people who are clearly very loving get sharp with this person in a way that nobody else can. Do you, I mean, I think yeah. that that's conscious, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, it's why, it's why the show keeps me fascinated because it would be very easy and a different show would, the relationship would be of the, of the fearless caregiver 
who uh, uh, or or you just say it's like uh, the the empathetic and understanding caregiver played by oh I don't know I don't want to sound like I'm saying some other actor would suck because they were playing it but some you know it would be a more traditional relationship uh, between the two but this one I think more reflects like you said. Uh, it's almost kind of like you could say anything you want about your mom, but then if another kid said, yeah, she kind of sucks, you'd be like, wait, mm-hmm. that's my mom, you know? Um, and, 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 she's, then also- and she's straight up crazy, too. I mean, I think, you know, they're they're playing with that, I think, dynamic, but she also is not balanced, <laughs> I think, right. right? Like, I mean, it's also right. written for laughs because I was going to play this tape, but it's just too complicated and too long. But there's this whole Where she's dy- making Leslie come address him <laughs> in the middle so of the conference room. She's explaining to everybody in the room, all of the coworkers, she's standing in front of an entire room full of uh, McMillan, <laughs> McMillan men and women, explaining that Stephen, their new coworker, is struggling with some things and that he's going to need some extra help from them. Um, and as she's explaining what a tough journey it's going to be for him, Leslie in the corner of the room just says, good luck, son. And then she says, she reprimands Leslie and says, don't ever address him directly until he's ready for it. You got to make sure that he's ready for it. And he says, sorry. And she says, tell him that, but just make sure he's prepared first. So Leslie has to do this walk of shame across the room through all of the coworkers and stand directly in front of Stephen. And then he's looking right at him and he says, is he ready? And she says, ask him that, which is like, that's some Joseph right. Heller like, catch 22 stuff. Fucking, cut me some fucking slack. <laughs> How and, you can know, I ask like, him if he's ready, if I'm not allowed to talk to him until he's ready? And what, and what you love is that, first of all, Leslie doesn't take shit from anyone. Mm-hmm. Leslie is very intimidating on this show. And he did. He doesn't fucking care about. Stephen Chu's journey. He was just saying a thing you say. Yeah. Like, well, good luck with that. So but good. now he's all no good deed goes unpunished. And now here he is standing in the middle of the conference room, just still trying to play by these rapidly evolving set of rules yes. that seem to just be yes. made up by Ali O'Donnell. You know, <laughs> she is so great. And it's, oh god, I like I love rewatching the show, but I also part of me is talking to the people who have only watched the first two episodes. And I just got to tell you, it only gets better. She gets so oh. good as this goes on. The dynamic gets weirder and weirder. And let me mention one last thing related to the uh, the actor Charlotte Arnold. I feel like she really typifies the casting on this show. Because one of the things that I do constantly as I'm watching Patriot is I'm Googling where what where's this person from, mm-hmm. this actor? How have I not known about them? And there's like a couple. There's like Gil Bellows, who I think was on Melrose Place. And then, of course, Terry Gillen from show? Lo- Who's Gil He is Lawrence LaCroix. He's the guy running oh. McMillan. Who okay, yeah. Things will also get more complicated with. Um but, you know, and then you've got Kurtwood Smith, Leslie from that 70s show. And, and, and but but really, because I was thinking about this because I was Googling Michael Chernus, who plays Edward Tavner. And I was like, how, you know, like, how is this guy not in everything? Because mm-hmm. he's so great. And uh, and again, uh, Charlotte Arnold is amazing. They've they've gone out and cast these people. The guy that plays uh, Tony Fitzpatrick, who plays Jack Birdbath, is so good. Yes. It's just they must have had a conversation. I have to imagine they had a conversation where they were like, "We, we're not going to, ca- we're mostly not going to cast people who have been in a lot of other things, 
because I mean I, I can't speculate as to their motives, but it's just I've, I've I repeatedly have the experience watching this show of googling someone and going why why is this person not in almost everything else I'm watching and finding out that they've same thing with Chris Conrad who plays Dennis. Um, it's like it's just they they somehow went out and found a bunch of people who I didn't know about, and these people are so good at being on this show. I know we could just list everybody um, on the because it. The list just goes on. If you got Everybody. the diapers. I got the time. <laughs> but I would I'd throw in um, oh, Kathleen Monroe. Uh, Kathleen yeah. Monroe, who plays Alice, uh, John's wife. And there's something about her. I think that she does a brilliant performance, but it's more subtle, right? Like the nurse is a character that really stands out to me because she's a little bit bonkers and it's hilarious. Yeah. And so it stands out. What Alice does or the, the Alice character is a little bit more of a, of a straight man, straight person, kind of like, you know, she has to play a much more subtle subtle role Convent- in a way conventional. conventional but somehow when she's on the screen i find her to be really magical for lack of a better word she just sparkles in a really convincing way i don't know i'm so impressed let with- me ask you about her let's do let's actually yeah. this is a good time to talk about um sort of plot development with her and john they're passing back and forth these the little like handheld MP3 recorder, which I guess is because it's 2015, right? Is that the time? That'd be. We're I in? think it's 2012. Oh, okay. Well, wait, but when the CDs are also, I see. So what's happening with Rob out in in Europe is also happening at the same time that in Milwaukee. Oh, right, because he hears John on the radio when he's about to hang himself, and it, you know, yeah, it. I th- it, it I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure it starts with John in Amsterdam in 2012. It's still 2012. And um, yeah, and we're going to that's okay. Well, that would make sense because they're they're basically passing back and forth these MP3 players that they've been recording themselves on, which is funny because it's, you know, already such antiquated technology. And I was forgetting the year that they're supposed to be. And I was like, why are they doing that? Why aren't they just sending a memo on their phone? But but um so what do you think Alice – what is John saying? There's a scene where Alice Tavner, she's walking down the street. Um, she doesn't know exactly, I don't think, where her husband is. Um, but she's listening to a recording of him on this MP3 player, and she becomes obviously upset because she hears something from him that has her worried and leads her to eventually – we're going to you know, figure out that she's going to go find out where he is thanks to finding a pen. Um, my question to you is do – is it explained what exactly she's hearing? Not in this episode. I have okay. a vague memory. I'm going to say something that's going to tick off the people who know the show better. I have a vague memory of her maybe listening to a recording of him talking. I think we're going to hear it later. And I think she hears a noise in the background. Oh. I think she hears some sort of environmental noise, like a whistle hmm. or an industrial noise of some sort that puts a light bulb above her head. I could be wrong about that, but that's what I think happens. By the way, when later on, when we're hearing John listening to her message and we can actually hear her message, she's describing the new app she's working on. I mean, again, every detail in this GD show. It could have just been some mundane, well, you know, work's been tough and the boss is... You know, on my back. Oh, you, you can always find a table. Uh, but instead, like, they make it so entertaining. She's working on an app that will tell you the the possibility, the percentage or possibility 
that another driver will wave to you if they if you let them into traffic in front of you. Did I have that right? Is that what the app yeah. is that she's working on? Yes. That is so great and speaks to me like it was a oh love God. letter directed towards if, me. Honestly, forget telemedicine. Forget <laughs> whatever other important thing that you could do with an app. Uh, I went to the doctor the other day because my heart, I was having not like – I don't want to say irregular heartbeat, but I went in just because my I felt like I was having a little fluttering in the dark. I was fine; they did an EKG, but he said, "You know the thing you need to do for this." Uh, he's like, "You just get the new Apple Watch, and it has an app that monitors your pulse. And if at any time your heartbeat is irregular, it knows it and it'll email us." Really? Wait, you had an EKG the other day, and you didn't even tell me for real. I mean, you can have. Yeah, your I wasn't. Things, a, but- it wasn't an emergency situation. It was like I just was – I had to go in anyway, and I was like, yeah, my heart my, – I felt like I've been having a little heart flutter, uh, which everything's A-OK. Everything's right. fine. I clean bill of health, and they did they did a whole EKG, and, and everything was – the really the most traumatic part was I had to take my shirt off in front of the nurse, which was <laughs> – And then the heart I mean, really, that really did a number uh, of the old I know. They're like, whoa, are you – you're having an episode. I'm like, no, it's because I'm shirtless. In front of a person I don't know, and it's right. very embarrassing. Yes. I honestly was almost like, "Can I get a robe and then just be naked, but under a, a paper robe sure. for this?" Like I'm going, <laughs> in the words of George Brett, I'm going, "No shirt, jeans, <laughs> black bucks, no socks." Like it was a very embarrassing look. But anyway, point is, uh, forget telemedicine, forget all these other updates, uh, advances in technology. I would buy that app. I would put that app up there at the top of the list of one of the most important things to our society. I agree. Is this person going to wave when I let them in traffic? Because the main reason I'm going to let you in is I need that confirmation that you see that I am a thoughtful person. I am giving this to you. You are not taking it from me. Thank you. And all a wave, you will make my day with a wave. And if you withhold the wave from me, I will follow you to your place of work. (laughs) We'll follow you to parking spot C-19, and I will ram your car. Um, Speaking of C-19, so Leslie is very, very down on John Lakeman as a McMillan employee. And his spot, as we heard there in the opening piece of tape, he's parking in spot C-19. John keeps parking there. Leslie decides, I'm going to fire him if he parks in the spot again. Um, I guess that's sort of at the end of the episode, so maybe we'll just hold off on that for a moment. Let me just put it this way. I 100% expected John to park in that spot because mm-hmm. he just – he does not have bandwidth for anything that's even a little bit meaningless, mm-hmm. if that's how you could mm-hmm. describe it. John Lakeman uh, – we'll just call him that. John Tavner, that's one of the things I'm realizing about him is that he's so – sort of i think depressed he's so P- uh, he's dealing with so much ptsd he's he's got so much going on he's in survival mode or he's in get through this mode all the time and things like parking spaces he just he can't fit that into his brain because he his brain will not allow him to think about anything that's not getting this bag back from Cantor Wally or somehow safely reuniting with his wife. He cannot be bothered with the details of life. And what it turns out is that most of life is the meaningless details of life. Like if the airbed you're on has been is 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 holding air, etc. Like all the details of his life are always collapsing around him because he cannot pay any attention to them. 
in some ways, he's his own worst enemy when it comes to these small things. And as we said before, um, you know, Leslie is like a kryptonite to him. He's like he's very competent yeah. in so many ways. But then these small details like he just, as you say, can't keep him in his head. But also we're now learning or it's being reinforced that his other worst enemy is his support crew because we also meet the HR director who is just another delightful character. We're going to see more yes. of him as the show goes on. Um, I think I wrote down his name here, or I didn't. Um, but we meet him. Oh, uh, Gregory Gordon is the character he's playing. He's the HR director. We meet him in an elevator, and he's very sweet, and he just says to John, like, everything's going great except for one, one big problem, which is uh, you have an extra digit in your social security numbers. Clearly, you know, it's somebody's job to create these fake documents for John so he can go undercover and just do his job. But somebody messed up and gave him an extra social security number. He says, I'm going to go grab my card. I'll, I'll bring it into your office tomorrow. And he's like, no, I, I have a photocopy of your card. I see the card. It has an extra number on it. I don't know how you've gotten through life this far without it being a problem. And now it's like, yeah. Once again, what's John going to do? Somebody on the back end has totally left him hanging. But this is kind of one of those things where it's like, like you said, he's kind of his own worst enemy, too. Because so somebody somebody somewhere in the CIA screwed up and gave him a shitty Social Security number that's not real and doesn't even look real. But what John needs to do, he needs to advocate for himself. He needs to go get me a real goddamn bed and two chairs mm -hmm. in this apartment because I can't sit on an airbed with my dad and have a conversation with mm -hmm. him. That's just not how adult men should behave towards each other. And then also, you guys, get me a new Social Security card that looks real, that has the right number, and send it to me and make up a cover story. You need to come up with a reason why HR got the wrong card or it's a misprint. Like, he... It could have been fixed, and as we'll learn as the show goes on, this idea of his HR status at McMillan is a bigger and bigger issue. Yep. And it's like a lot of things that happen on the show where, like, I'm just repeating you at this point. It's somebody somebody was incompetent, but then, again, John's inability to do some small things because he's so overwhelmed with the large things, then those small things become large things. And, though, to repeat what you said, and maybe we're going to be in a oh, loop here, but he's also got bigger fish to fry. Like, he's only sure. got so much time. We're going to hear right. about the birdbath situation, which is going to add more to his plate here in a second, which is just even more delightful in the second watching, by the way. Um, but also, we are at a point in the show where he now realizes he has to memorize this <laughs> what I'll call techno babble that he needs to present. We just heard Leslie in a meeting saying this is what you need to know about piping for the presentation. And he goes in this whole. Hey, can we, we just play the tape? Yes. Yeah, let's uh, do yes. it. And I, 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 I am so I'm utterly fascinated with this, this bizarre language of piping. So this is like this to me is like the heart of Patriot right here. We're going to task off today in prep form. John. Don't overpromise this week. Sell them on the structure. You can talk about it with confidence. Keep it simple. A little something like this, John. Hey, let me walk you through our Donnelly nut spacing and crack system rim riding grip configuration. Using a field of half C sprats and brass fitted nickel slits, our bracketed caps and splay flexed brace columns 
vent dampers to dampening hatch steps of one half meter from the damper crown to the spur of plinth. How? Well, we bolster 12 husk nuts to each girdle jerry, while flex tandems press a task apparatus of 10 vertically composited patch hamplers. Then, pin flam fastened pan traps at both maiden apexes of the gym joints. A little something like that, Lakeman. A little something like that, Lakeman. That is word for word how I describe my lovemaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, a lot of people have sent this in to me. This is actually based, that technobabble is based on a decades-old joke that started in an engineering grad student journal. Uh, I can't remember the exact university, but it's a good one. Oh, mm-hmm. Harvard or something? Okay. Way back in 1944. Somebody, and I don't know if we have the actual name of the person. Yes, the grad student's name was John Helens Quick, and he wrote this. The original machine had a base plate of prefabulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two main spurving bearings were in a direct uh, line with the spurving panometric pan- <laughs> fan. The latter consisted of six hydrocoptic marzal veins. Anyway, it goes on from there. So somebody slipped that into this journal back in 1944 as a gag. Not long after that, I think in the same decade, Time Magazine picked it up because it became an inside joke amongst engineers and engineering students, and it kind of became like pre-internet viral way back in the day. Then the in 1977, I'm going to read directly here from an article I found about this on CNET. In 1977, actor Bud Haggart, who is a veteran of industrial training films, found himself with some extra cameras and some free time after filming a short for GMC Trucks. He convinced the film crew and the director to stick around and shoot something called his Turbo Incabulator film, the script for which he derived from the original student article. And that became, again, a pre-internet viral video that was a joke amongst engineers and engineering students. Take a listen to this. For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. Such an instrument is the turbo-encabulator. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes, it is produced by the modial interaction of magneto-reluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of prefamulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two spurving bearings were in a direct line with a panometric fam. So a lot of that is exactly what I just read from the Wikipedia, right? And so then after that, he made a follow-up one. It just became a bigger and bigger thing, and then somebody else made the retro encabulator. Um, And so this has just been kind of an inside joke among engineers for a long time and then patriot i think kind of spun off of that we actually got an email because we've talked about this a lot over on our other podcast tbtl a listener to that show kevin who is a mechanical engineer uh who works in piping i think (laughs) said they throw in the occasional uh, real term that is applicable to piping nut flange joist Mm -hmm. but it's mostly gibberish 
Yes. That's what our listener Kevin, who's a mechanical engineer, uh, says. So, I mean, that must just be – that must be really fun to write. But I have to tell you, uh, as a person who uh, sometimes has to uh, memorize you know, copy for – I do you know some of these corporate videos and things like that. And sometimes it has to be kind of specific mm-hmm. to a certain kind of Microsoft security technology. But, I mean, nothing – Nothing like what, um, you know, Kurtwood Smith just had to say. I have a hard time rem- memorizing lines when it's not – it's a bunch of stuff that's just kind of gibberish to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know how the actors on this show – again, Kurtwood Smith does the, the bulk of it. I don't know how he can memorize that stuff yeah. because it's just – it's it's nonsense. And when, when you're trying to remember nonsense, your brain can't create a logical – connection between the concepts so you just you literally just it's like you're memorizing how to speak another language just by phonetically or something yeah yeah i wonder if i mean i'm assuming that he just did memorize that and deliver it i guess there could have been aids like off cue cards off camera but could have been like brando towards the end of his career famously brando just like stopped learning lines so they would put a little earpiece in and then someone would whisper the line and then brando would just repeat it oh my god Oh, my God. That would actually be – for something like this, I feel like that would almost be harder, though, because it's just one long right. string. Like, it would just be yeah. maddening to be, like, two words behind the voice in your ear. But anyway, I guess back to my original point is, in a certain way, you think, John, just take control of the situation. Get on the phone with somebody at HQ and have them solve this. But he's also got just a million other things he's trying to do. And while he's trying to do those other things, he's also muttering to himself this speech so that he can memorize it and present it. And every time you think he's starting to get some momentum, he forgets and he just goes, fuck. Yeah. Like, right. you never see him get the, get the speech down on the show, like on this episode. He's always just kind of like trying. He's sitting in some giant, you know, industrial, like, sec- segment of, of concrete pipe, which, by the way, just from a, um, a sort of cinematography standpoint, there's just... I just love that being his de facto office. Oh my god. Like he goes out and he's just sitting in this in this big, like I said, industrial, like huge wide, you could almost like skateboard in it or something, concrete pipe. And then there's a really great scene where the Dennis character you can see in the far background, and I think this comes up I think this continues to come up. Maybe in future episodes, or maybe I just blended it a bunch does. of stuff together. I know you're going to say, and it definitely There's does. these great scenes where he's just static in this pipe, but then everybody who is creating pressure in his life is approaching this pipe, but it's choreographed so beautifully that, like, one person starts walking from, like, across the field. Someone else comes up in the kind of, you know— closer uh, like in the more near field and then says something and leaves and that other person is just still on their way then another person passes through it's just like the 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 visual of of him hanging out in this pipe trying to get his shit together and then all the people that need something from him it's really really cool it is like a it's like goddamn visual poetry i mean it's gonna get so good later on i can think of a scene where you're right i mean the the heat is just being turned up on this frog named john he's in his pipe and as you're seeing once you know that this is the rhythm that people come up to him in this pipe and, and dump whatever they have mm. to dump on him, you start to see like, okay, 
Leslie is like walking up to him, and then you can see in the distance, oh no, here comes Dennis. Oh no, and you can already see before Dennis even gets there, behind Dennis or way, way out in the background is the nurse. What is the nurse going to do? You know, like they start to signal, you start to feel the stress, but it's also so beautiful and like a dance number. I always, I wonder when you see something like that, did, you know, Stephen Conrad. Uh, or did somebody working on the show like sit down and write that? I mean, obviously, the scene was written out to work that way, but I wonder how you arrive at that because it's so smart. And I wonder if it's like if you started shooting it and then you just realized, oh, this would be interesting if this like I wonder what the evolution of that idea was like in the creative on the creative side because it's so smart. I, I mean, to, they're just. There are just constantly scenes in this show where I'm like, that is the most fascinating way to tell that story or this part of the story. Like when when John's going around, he's now doing um, birdbaths bidding. What we've what we've learned is that birdbath killed a kid while on duty as a cop. He's a bad guy. That's what we think we know about him. And he's got something on John Lakeman because he overheard John Lakeman getting Dennis's pee. And so. Birdbath has John Lakeman over a barrel, and he's going to use that to sneak evidence into the evidence locker, and we assume somehow clear himself of this lawsuit slash of the killing of this guy. Like, we just, like, Birdbath is a bad guy. And so he sends John on this mission to, like, steal these prosthetics and uh, kidnap a therapy dog. And again, it's just like, there's just so many moments where the way stuff unfolds. I just think, how did somebody think of that? Mm-hmm. Like, how did somebody think of that as the way to do this? Because it's so good. There's almost nothing cliche about this TV show that I've that I've seen. And again, I'm I'm only early on in the second season, but like that the the scenes where everyone's coming to talk to Lakeman. You know, I love how <laughs> Leslie goes four forty five. Uh, we usually take it all the way to five o'clock. <laughs> we take it all the way to five o'clock around and like, here. And like, that. you know, and you just want John. What I want, I'm constantly trying to quantum leap into John and tell him what to say, particularly yeah, to yeah. Leslie. Like, I want him to say, I'm out here thinking about, I'm out here practicing, or like, I'm out here thinking about piping. Yeah, exactly. That I'm would trying be to an think answer. about your meeting, and I'm trying to, you know, I'm getting in the mental yeah. space for this presentation. Which would be a, which would be a good... That would be a good excuse. It would like, hey, I'm still working. I'm just out here trying to concentrate. But instead, he just says, uh, I think my watch is broken. It's like yeah. he just always says something that does not. He never says anything that helps his kind of reputation with Leslie. It's always, in my mind, the wrong thing. And the show you were talking before about, like, you know, what brains come up with this? How how do writers make this so compelling? When we talk about the the whole birdbath thing, so, you know, right now birdbath is saying you have to, you know, do a bunch of these weird tasks like steal, steal a leg while the vets are swimming or what have you. And it seems like it's not going to make any sense. And I think we've seen a lot of shows where – Shows can be kind of weird and intriguing, but then they don't pay off. And even at the end of this one, you don't know exactly what Birdbath is doing, but you see that, oh, he he had a plan for all of this stuff all along by stealing the leg. That's going to help him uh, take advantage when he has to break when John has to break into the police station later. Like everything does have a purpose. And 
for viewers who haven't seen episode three yet, you're going to find out even more about what Birdbath's aims are. And it's so intricate. But the thing is, they just don't dump it all on you at at once. You have to trust that all of this stuff is going to pay off and there's a reason for it. And in the show, I'm telling you, you can trust it. It is true. Like there's right. th- every, there's a method to all of this madness. I think it's interesting when John Lakeman has to go into the evidence locker and he is going to play a he's going to play two air horns. He's going to mm-hmm. deploy two really loud air horns next to a police officer who's working in the evidence locker because he's emotionally pretty fragile. And that gets into this whole thing, which, again, I don't know if it's real or just made up in the universe of this show, which gets into the question of, like, police insurance and who's been assigned where, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating to me, again, whether it's real or not. And so he's going up to this guy who who usually has an emotional support dog, and he's going to play these loud sounds, which he knows is just going to absolutely scramble the brain of this cop so then he can go in and do what he needs to do in the evidence locker. And you can see that he doesn't want to do it. Yes. John Lakeman doesn't want to do it. And when he plays the horn and the guy's reacting, he gets tears in his eyes. And it's like, I think, the first time, and one of the, uh, as far as I am into the show, one of the few times where you can see it's emotionally really hard for him to do some of this shit. I feel like he can he can piano wire a bad guy pretty easy. Uh, he can do a lot of things. He was broke a tree off. He was ready to kill Birdbath. He was going to literally kill Birdbath. With a tree limb, but something about because of course John Lakeman's own PTSD and stuff, he didn't want to do that. It really bothered him to do that to that guy. Yeah, and yeah, I couldn't help draw the same comparisons. Like John is a guy who will kill somebody. He never relishes it. He doesn't like it, right. and it does eat at him later, as we see. Like in the first time we meet him, he's or not the first time, but one of the first times we meet him, he's singing that song that we played uh, last week. And at the end, he's he's clearly still struggling with the fact that he, in the line of duty, killed an innocent person who was just there to change the bedsheets in a hotel, but he thought it was the physicist, right? And that's clearly still bugging him. He's not just a guy who goes around killing people and it doesn't, it doesn't affect him, but he will do it. It's part of the job. But then he has to do these smaller things that are almost on the level of pranks, now, they're serious. Mm-hmm. This is a cop. It's been established. He's suffering from PTSD. I think he was a vet, too, right? I don't recall. But for whatever reason, this is a cop that he knows is dealing with PTSD. He knows he doesn't have a support animal who's going to help him through this. And even this thing, just just harming somebody just mentally, takes almost more of a toll, if not the same exact amount of toll, as killing somebody. And that's right. really interesting. Well, again, it's, it's, it, I'm, not, I'm probably not doing any high-level... Um, I don't know, reading of the of the sort of symbolism of the show or whatever. But honestly, I think John uh, John Tavner, I think being alive is a chore for him because of the trauma he's been through. He probably wouldn't mind being dead. Hence, he's riding his bike through traffic. Yeah. uh, You know, kind of daring the universe to kill him. And I think in a way, him traumatizing this this police officer, that's almost worse for him than just killing the guy because he on some level probably wouldn't be mind mind being put out of his misery. Yeah, yeah, and what I also like about this is just a little look ahead too. Is um, we're going to see all of these people who are being introduced. We're, we're not done with them yet. <laughs> like these end up being characters who become even more uh, filled out as the show uh, goes on. And speaking of new characters, 
we get to meet a new character at the very, very end of this one. And if you've only watched uh, episode two, then probably didn't stand out to you. But the character of Ichabod is going to play a larger and larger role in this show. And we finally get our first glimpse of Ichabod at the very end when Leslie is uh, stand, uh, I guess, sitting on a pipe or a steel beam somewhere staring at his parking space of C-19, knowing that John is going to park in it accidentally, and then he can fire him. And he's like, Ichabod, you want to watch me fire this guy when he parks in my parking spot? And Ichabod's like, you're hard, man. <laughs> I love Ichabod But so he's also much. in for it. He's oh, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll watch that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, what does he um, say? Something like, sounds, sounds great. Um, now, the, the only thing that actually stops John from, in my mind, the only thing that actually stops him from pulling into C-19 is that out of the blue, uh, Agath Albans, the investigator from Luxembourg, shows up, like literally walks through the parking lot, and he almost hits her. Now, she's made it over to Milwaukee um, because somehow she's – I'm still I, – I maybe, maybe I just zoned out or something, but she's trying to get this thing called a blue – Notice. Letter? Blue, blue notice? note? Blue notice, I think. A, she's trying to get this blue notice – which again, the, the, you, who knows uh, how much of this stuff is real and the invention of the writers of this show? Either way, it's fascinating. She's got to get this blue notice because she basically has to. She needs to prove that this is um, that it's worth her traveling to the U.S. to continue pursuing. Uh, in this case, she's sort of seeing. She's thinking Dennis McLaren, and she has to establish three connection points uh, to the crime: the murder of this um of this brother of the baggage handler from the airport and so she she does she presents it it seems like she has it figured out and then it's still turned down uh and i'm wondering do you think the cia got that thing turned down is that what we're supposed to understand i i don't i think it's the state department i'm not sure but we know that we see um leslie so at the very beginning of the show um leslie is is talking to john and i'm sorry leslie i'm sorry tom is uh, talking to John, right? At the very the dad, beginning, the Terry dad. Quinn, exactly, is talking America's to John. America's number one bald hunk. And he says, listen, don't worry about the investigators coming in from Luxembourg. I'm going to take care of that. I will stall them, I think is the exact quote. You just worry about getting back in the good graces of Leslie. Um, so that's established. A few scenes later, we see Tom playing racquetball with uh, some government honcho. And I assume that it is somebody from the Department of State. But it could be somebody else who's just in a different spy organization. But I'm pretty sure it's State Department. And uh, John and Tom is saying, thank you so much for stepping in and making this tough on the uh, foreign investigators. And the guy's like, don't worry about it. This is what we do. This is what we do. How many times have we done this? Don't worry about it. And then they start playing racquetball. Ah. And it's hilarious because... Apparently, Tom is terrible at racquetball, but this is something yeah, that like he's everything else happened in to life. You, right? Um, and so we that has been set up that they are going to make it very difficult for her to get the notice. Um, this isn't interesting to anybody, but there's one part of rewatching this show yesterday that is driving me mad. And it is the scene where um, we see uh, the investigators and the lead investigator, Agath. Is that how we pronounce it? Agath? The lead investigator? It depends on the accent. I feel like they call her Agathe okay. uh, in like France when, they're, when she's getting – when she's sort of being uh, you know, hassled by the 
uh, super chauvinistic French, yeah. or uh, yeah, well, I guess Luxembourg, yeah, Lux- Luxembourgian police. Yeah. Yes, um, they call their department what the 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 uh, silk and stocking or the skirt and stocking department. They're making fun of these women who are investigating this. But anyway. I remember the first time watching this because, I, again, I think I was watching it on a plane and I had to go back a few times to hear some things that I missed and turning on the um, the captions. I remember the first time I watched the scene where these investigators are going to divide up all of the garbage from the hotel and some of them are going to look through the kitchen garbage and some of them are going to look through um, the guest garbage cans. And like in the office, they're going to do that. And I remember the first time watching it, there's a bit of a debate about which investigators have to look at the grosser garbage. Like, why do we have to look at the ones from the kitchen and they switch it around? And I rewatched that scene three times yesterday and it's not in there. Am I totally making up a mundane memory about a totally unnecessary part of this show? Is there a chance that these things are being slightly tweaked still on Amazon? Whoa, that is a fascinating question. I swear I remember. I almost want to find, I wonder if I could find the script, the original script of this. And you think the scene that's missing is when they're debating which garbage has it, to be it's sorted It's not even through? a scene. It, it is the scene where they, right be, when they announce, when, when the lead investigator says to her investigators, okay, we're going to go through the garbage. You guys go through the kitchen stuff. We're going to go through the bedroom stuff or whatever. Um, I swear in that moment, one of the, you know, more subordinate investigators says, why do we have to do this one? Why don't we switch it around? And then I think they do switch it around. It I doesn't really that. have any It's from a later episode. Maybe, but I swear. Cause I remember the... that scene as well. You do remember that now them saying yes, that? I do. I mean, yes. maybe there's a chance that we're going to flash back on this scene. I don't think there's two scenes where they go through garbage. Um, but there, this show does flash back and forth a lot, so there's a chance that we're going to see another perspective on this scene in a later episode. That actually makes the most sense. Let's keep an that's eye one out of the, for but, that. But but boy, that would really that would explain a lot if they were because I mean they could right these shows are streaming they could go back yeah. and change the source file. I don't know why they would, but um, I know what you mean. It's an it's it's been fun to rewatch stuff because I'm learning more, but then it's also been weird because. I think there may be parts where my brain was writing, misremembering uh-huh. things or writing in a scene that didn't happen. or I don't know. It's an, I keep watching so far and being like, well, what about that thing? But I think mm-hmm. it's just that – I think what happens is this show plays with time so much and it flashes back so much that there's a lot of stuff that w- what your brain probably does is it takes all of the events related to garbage sorting and it kind of puts them in the same scene – uh, regardless of what episode it happened in, if it was a flashback or not. And I think that uh, my guess is that, that we will figure out what that was about in subsequent episodes. Yeah. All right. Let's keep an eye out for that. Um, so so uh, I get through whatever means she she gets through the red tape. She gets to Milwaukee. That's kind of where these things end. Um, oh, one other thing, though. I know we have an, another Oh, by the way, through whatever means, we during that garbage sorting, they find the piece of evidence they need. And I don't know if right. we're going to – oh, am I spoiling it if I say what it is? Maybe they I don't, don't make it so. clear in this episode. But they find the piece of paper where John was writing down was the down address. 700 Day Champlain or Exactly, where the Brazilians were who had taken his money that he had right. then go But what's retrieve. funny to me about that is, well, if the if whatever – 
if whatever like you know shadowy U.S. department was was cock blocking the blue notice, I mean, wouldn't they just keep cock blocking it? Like uh, somehow yeah, this, is, this, this is this is this is enough evidence to get it over the top, I guess. Um, and so she did. She does, and now here she is, all of a sudden, at um, at McMillan. Um, one other thing, which now we're kind of going backwards a little bit, I guess, but I still think it's kind of interesting, is this conversation uh, with between Edward Tavner and uh, and uh, uh, what's her name, Alice Tavner, so brother and his sister-in-law, uh, talking about his like tracksuit he's wearing because of of kind of the importance of the Beastie Boys in his mind and also his connection to his dad. What I think is kind of interesting about it is it's it's a little view into again Edward's weird obsessiveness about things and then also just like why are these guys going to bat for their dad so hard all the time or why I should say why is it that just a given like there is a lot of scenes we talk a lot about how John Tavner is kind of uh, a pawn I think in the game of his dad trying to and granted I think his dad's intentions are good he wants to stop a iran from getting a nuclear weapon but i feel like what he's always doing is just telling john you got to just go you got to go jump off a building and through a brick wall now to go do this and he never asked himself is my son gonna die is this gonna be bad mentally and emotionally for my son he's just like you got to go do it and i don't think as much about the toll that this all takes on edward edward's got this secret son who's not that secret he thinks he's doing a great job keeping this under wraps that he has this kid uh that 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 uh, he's not married to the mother and also the the mother is african american and so he comes from this you know he's a congressman from this conservative district in texas so he's got to keep this all under wraps but we never talk about the fact that like he missed a camping weekend with the kid cuz he had to go to uh europe and get his brother back he's constantly just like just his dad just is ordering him around again, mm-hmm. not in a mean way, but it's like these guys exist. They serve at the leisure of their father in this show. And you wonder why. And there's I feel like there's a small view into why he feels loyal to his dad. Right. Yeah. So as you say, so here he is sitting on the um, the front stoop and he's talking to Alice and he's wearing his uh, his green and yellow tracksuit. You know why I'm wearing this? That weird green suit. Mm. This era authentic Beastie Boys license ill tour top and sweats. Oh, no, I, I don't know why you're wearing that. MCA died Friday. Yeah. By the way, another thing that really roots this in 2012, you know, I think that that's... Yeah. This scene serves a lot of purposes, but also a very kind of, you know, current event happening in 2012. MCA of the Beastie Boys died. That was sad. Yeah, it was sad. Part of me died too. Just a little part. A little cool part. <laughs> See, Dad and John, they always had their thing. But I'm not musical in that way. I'm not musical in the way that I can play music. I'm musical in the way that I like beats and fun loving rhymes. Dad, not into it at all. But. You know what, Alice? When I was 11, he took me to the Summit Arena in Houston for this tour. And he wasn't that old then, but he was bald already, and he was the oldest guy there, anyway, by like a mile. And the Beastie Boys had this 
huge um, inflatable dick on the stage. No, seriously. And they thought it was like nine feet, and they thought it was really funny to sort of um, poke dad with it for like the whole show. It was the best. And dad just endured it with a smile. He just good sported it, you know? The whole night. Never said we had to leave. What did that story have to do with what we're talking about? Because even though we may be different from each other, I am a Tavner. I'm not going to talk about what John does. That's a powerful scene, man. That always stood out to me. Gets into the family loyalty thing. Also kind of really starts to give us an insight into Edward, who's like, you know, he's... You know, he's not good at music in the traditional sense in that he can make music. (laughs) He's just a little turd out there to use one of our favorite phrases from a different TV show. It's like he's just he's just kind of he's just he he does not have any of John's natural abilities. But I guess what you can say he does have going for him. And again, a lot might change in season two, but he, he he's game. That's for sure. And I do think he eventually, you know. He eventually does show some aptitude in certain ways. I mean, he has he has his 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 skills he brings to things, but they're not readily apparent. No, and we also will see see even more tomfoolery from him and Dennis, either season one or season two. I can't recall that even. Generally speaking, I love that they made him a congressman. They could have made him anything, but I feel like this is also a statement of like some of the chuckleheads who are in Congress. Right? He's he's not a yeah. senator. He's a con- he's a congressman from right. a district but in, that's in kind Texas. Of, but that's interesting because you know what? That is interesting. You bring that up because I go back and forth on that because part of me is like like. Why didn't you just make him a lobbyist? Why didn't you just make him some kind of a bureaucrat? Why didn't you – because Congress – to be in Congress – I mean, yeah, there are people in Congress that are absolute jokes of humans. And, uh, I mean, (laughs) Steve King comes to mind. Louis Gohmert comes to mind. The list goes on. Jim Jordan. Uh, This is where I just name Republicans. (laughs) I'm not a fan of their work. Uh, Welcome to McMillan Men. No, I uh, – but I also at sometimes I'm kind of like I wonder why because because U.S. congressman is not nothing. It's not like a I mean you know you're an elected official. You're one of I don't know how four. I used to cover Congress. I think I would know what is it four hundred and fifty Congress people or something like that. I, I kind of sometimes think that that's too lofty for him. But I think you're right. I think it's a comment about how depending on the district you're from. And almost anybody could become a member of Congress. Yeah. Uh, hey, by the way, I want to go back to something here. My computer's malfunctioning, so hopefully I can do this. I want to go back to that blue notice thing because I have a little bit more information about it because I was watching this as we watch a lot of TV shows, just kind of like, eh, I'm just accepting what they're giving me. This blue notice is something. In my head, I assumed it was something that the United States signs off on to say whether or not you can come to our country and and uh, lead an investigation against somebody who is in our country, but actually it's an Interpol thing. There's something called Interpol notices. It's an international alert circulated by Interpol to communicate information about crimes, criminals, and threats by police in a member state, um, and they are all color-coded, red, yellow, blue, black, orange, and green. 
The red one, um, it says here, is the closest instrument to an international arrest warrant. Meanwhile, the blue one, if I can get to that, represents uh, you need a blue notice to locate identify or obtain information on a person of interest in a criminal investigation. So it sounds like what happened here is it's actually an international body that tells you whether or not you've achieved uh, or who have earned a blue notice, but the United States, uh, and again, this is why I think it's the State Department, is blocking it from you know whatever standpoint they have a say in it. But it doesn't sound like it's actually the U.S.'s final decision about whether or not to let her in. So she gets enough right. uh, information. Maybe you assumed that. For some reason, I thought blue notice was a u.s thing but it's an international thing oh i figured it was international but i figured the u.s was working behind the scenes Mm. with like putting leverage on whatever the international body was to deny it because it's kind of like a you know you scratch our back we'll scratch yours like you know this is a matter of uh this is there's more to this than um than than meets the eye it's not a simple criminal investigation there's a lot of other stuff going on Mm -hmm. um but uh one way or the other she ends up over in Milwaukee, that's kind of where things are left, um, and uh, and and I guess that kind of brings us more or less to the end of this episode. Did I did did we omit anything? Did we did I forget any big plot points or interesting moments? No, I mean I think it's an interesting choice to. Um to have the entire episode called C-19 about this parking spot, C-19, which, again, mm-hmm. it's the small things that can totally sink John and just forgetting to not park in his boss's parking spot uh, is one of them. I think it's an interesting choice to stop the show abruptly right before he may or may not park in that spot. And we get a little deus ex machina with the investigator stepping in front of his car, and then it ends on a cliffhanger. Although, if memory serves, episode three picks up on this scene. Do you remember that? I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I don't know if this is... I don't care about spoiling this, I guess. Um, I think that he ends up coming very, very close to actually pulling in the spot and then having a recollection of, oh, wait, I can't park here. And then he pulls out and moves his car. Does that ring a bell to you? That does ring a bell. But a lot of these scenes blend together for me. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, I think at this I, – I think, yeah, I think the ending of it there is just because of the shock of him almost hitting her and then this realization that, like, oh, shit. Yeah. She's there. She made it. And it's also um, a funny joke because we we hear, you know, he's listening. He's doing so many things in his brain at the same time. He's he's trying to memorize this pipe speech, but also he's listening to these messages from his wife, which is keeping him, I think, emotionally whole. And then she says, again, hey. the only time you see him smile is in yeah. this episode that I can think of is when he's listening to Alice's voice. Yes. And uh, and we're listening to him listen to her. And she says, uh, in case you're missing me, I recorded something for you uh, in bed last night. And we think that she is going to go into some uh, real hot, sexy talk. And then uh, it switches over and she just sends him a, a, a recording of her snoring, just like not daintily either, just her snoring in bed. And again, it's like these small little um, non-cliche moments into their private life that I love too, that they just also have a sense of humor yeah, of and they like making each other laugh. Because honestly, if this were a different show, if this was a show that was on, I don't know, HBO or Showtime, and they were trying to be like, uh, I don't know what, somehow like edgy and racy, you would have heard a whole audio, you know, sort of vignette of her pleasuring herself. And it would have been like 
yeah, get a load of like, you know, like the, the, this show does not use sex or titillation or danger or violence in any of the normal ways, which mm-hmm. I love about it. Yeah. Because all that stuff is just so it's just so done and obvious. And it's like the things that are put on screen that are I mean, I can there are I can think of like a handful of sex scenes that I've ever seen in a movie that I've even needed to be in the movie <laughs> or the TV right. Show. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost always just laziness, I think, on the part of the filmmaker or the TV showrunner or the writers. Because, but, but what's great about this show is that they, they just never, they never take the easiest or straightest route anywhere. Which is why, for instance, John will be on the phone trying to call a service dog in subsequent episodes because everything's just oh, that's right. weird and woven together and interesting and clever uh, here on this show. So, hey, I had a song... Uh, that I thought we could kind of go out with, which is a little weird. Well, that but. would help if you could play it from your end because my computer is now totally freaking out. This is a song by a Canadian band called the Joel Plaskett Emergency, and the song is called True Patriot Love. Okay. I don't think I know it. The Joel Plaskett Emergency might be the patriot of Canadian bands. <laughs> I don't know how many people listen to them. I was in a Wilco cover band. My friend Ben Steele suggested this song. We we played it, not very well, but it's always stuck in my mind. So I guess we'll go out with that. And, and it's obscure uh, enough that if there had been a season three, it probably would have made it into the show. Yeah, so we're going to start our Joel Plaskett emergency band-related podcast right when we're done with <laughs> McMillan Men. All right, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week.